Good morning. My name is Pastor Dan Leitinen, and it's nice to share God's Word with you from Luke chapter 6 today. And I want to, uh, uh, first of all, begin with prayer, and then we'll get into the message. Dear God in heaven, be with us with your Holy Spirit this morning, and work in our hearts to will and to do the things that you call us to do, covered by grace through Jesus. Amen. It was uh, the summer that I turned 18 that I finally got my driver's license, and um, I think my parents were trying to save money as long as they could on insurance, so I waited those extra two years. Plus, I didn't have a car, and I was going away to school where we really didn't, I didn't need a car too, too badly. And um, I remember as after I got my license one summer afternoon, going wherever 18-year-olds go on a Sunday afternoon, I was pulling out of the garage and all of a sudden, I heard a long, loud screech, and it came to a halting stop. I quick put it in uh, drive again. I pulled forward, and I looked behind me, and sure enough, the handyman had parked his truck in the driveway to the left, and I didn't know that it was there. I got out of the van, and I looked on the side of Dad's new Honda Odyssey, a deep, long cut into the side of the driver's side uh, passenger door. I immediately went inside because I knew I, if I went and I did whatever I was going to do and I came back, there'd be more questions than anything more. So I went right in. I told Dad, I said, Dad, I am so sorry. I forgot the handyman's truck was in our driveway over the weekend, and he came running out. He looked at it, and I thought for sure I was going to be working this off for the next eight months because I was like making minimum wage, and I barely had started this new job. He looked at it, and he said... He was disappointed, you know, the look on his face, and he said, it's not worth calling insurance about, and then he forgave me, because he knew I couldn't afford it, and he knew that this was something way beyond, I mean, you know, even those small things on the car are way beyond what an 18-year-old could afford to do, and so he forgave it just like that. I remember the relief that I had, and yet the pain that I had that he had to look at this and uh, pay out of his own pocket for. Well, fast forward. 15 years, a wife, four kids later, and I was there in my dad's shoes one Sunday afternoon as my kids are rustling in the living room, pillow fighting, and all of a sudden, there's a roundhouse and there's a, a little projectile in one of their hands, and they let the projectile go across the living room floor. It was a cookie monster about this big, flying through the air and right in the middle of my 55-inch 4K TV that I had just gotten for Father's Day. Cracks all over the place. As I was watching golf, I remember it was golf. I just stared at that TV, and as I stared at it for about the next minute without saying anything, they slowly walked out of the room. <laughs> wow. I took a deep breath, and... I pretended, I closed my eyes, opened them again about five more times. It was still there, the cracks all over the screen. I said, this is not getting fixed. And there's no way that a four-year-old can pay me back for this mistake, right? This is a mistake that's pretty permanent. So what's there left to do besides crying but to forgive? You have to forgive because there's no way that this person can pay you back, um, and I guess that's the easy part of forgiveness is if it's that, that dear child of yours, right, that does something, a mistake that, that, they can, that you can forgive because you love them and they're your own flesh and blood. But let me ask you this. 
What if the person that did something against you was bigger than a scratch on a car, was bigger than a, 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 you know, a broken new TV? What if it was something much larger than that and it wasn't your own flesh and blood? Or what if it was somebody that did it not on accident and left that mark in your life? Somebody that could repay it to you, but they won't. This teaching that we have this morning, Jesus teaching us about loving difficult people. I'll go even farther because it says it in the scripture, loving your enemies. It's a difficult, difficult thing for us to do, and it's a unique teaching of Jesus. It's one of his most difficult teachings. But what we're going to discover this morning is that it gets down to the core of God's values. And if we can understand the core of God's values with us, we'll understand that our world can be a better place, our relationships can be better, and it's not going to be easy, but we're going to talk about God's core value and what that means in our life. Here's an example of something that happened. Uh, true story, 2016, Minneapolis Star Tribune reported on this in last year. They, they told the whole story and the fallout of the story. Jameson Pals, his wife Catherine, and three children were on their way from Nebraska to Colorado to train uh, to be missionaries overseas. As they're driving through one of those towns in Nebraska, there's a construction zone. And as they slow down in the construction zone, the semi-truck behind them didn't get the note that it was a construction zone and that they had to slow down. A distracted driver in the truck rammed into them from behind and killed all of them instantly. Now imagine being Jameson's parents that not just lost a son and a daughter, but three beautiful kids under the age of four. This morning, when we look in and we see the, the people that hurt us and we wonder how in the world can Jesus, this is almost offensive when Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How, how can you do that? Where does this come from? Jesus speaks about this in his famous sermon. It's a sermon that we believe he's given more than once because he's given a sermon like this in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 called the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. And he says nearly the same things. This time it says in Luke chapter 6, he's using what seems to be the same outline, um, but it says that he's preaching on a level plane here. And so this is a different setting, and he's teaching the same things that he does in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke is just the less popular version of this, but um, I think that there's just incredible insight into um, his sermon when you look at it from Luke chapter 6 point of view. And it says here, But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." 
You know, these words that you just heard, they, they can be offensive, and you might ask yourself, how can you do this? These words are unique to the Christian faith. In fact, there's no other holy book. There's plenty of holy books that say what? Love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule. You can find that pretty much in human philosophy throughout time and ages because it's been noticed to be something that is true. You know, love your neighbor, those people that are around you, like you would want to be loved. But no book, no philosophy, no religion has ever gone as far as Jesus to say, actually love and pray for those people that hurt you. And that's why when you read these words, you think this is impossible because maybe someone in your life has taken something from you emotionally or physically um, that cannot be replaced. And to look at them at their Facebook page or to hear their name just makes you cringe. It makes your stomach sick because you know the hurt that they've put into your life. What's interesting about this is I'm going to go to the Matthew version of the same, starting of the same uh, area of, of this teaching, teaching about loving your enemies. Jesus says at the beginning of this in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And there you see that he's making a commentary against the same start to the sermon, but he's bringing something out here, and in what he's bringing out is he's saying, you have heard that it was said, this is a teaching that's going around, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, where does he get that from? He gets that from Leviticus chapter 18, uh, 19, verse 18, where it says, do not seek revenge or hold a grudge, but love your neighbor. You see? Jesus is going back in Scripture, and he's saying this isn't just a teaching that is, um, that is here today that wasn't there yesterday. It's always said, love your neighbor. In Leviticus, it says, love your neighbor. And you might think to yourself, well, Jesus, you look at this verse that he's quoting here from Leviticus. I'm sorry, it's a little small on the screen. And you say, I don't see anywhere in that verse that Jesus is quoting to hate your enemy. In fact, Leviticus never says to hate your enemy. Well, what has happened? What has happened over time? People have taken this verse in Leviticus in Jesus' time, and they've said, well, look, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. And my neighbor is who? Well, Adam and Amanda, my in-laws, they send me Christmas cards. I'm going to send them Christmas cards back. Who's my neighbor? Uh, Jesse and Jamie, my neighbor. They're my neighbor, and they're the ones that are nice to me. They've mowed my lawn, so I'm going to mow their lawn back. Who are my friends? Who are my neighbors? My friends and my neighbors are the people that are like me. They come to synagogue like me, and so I'm going to be friendly to them because they're friendly to me. And this was the teaching that was being taught back then. You're thinking to yourself, Jesus, where are you getting this verse from? This verse doesn't exist in Leviticus. Well, look closely again. Jesus says, what you have heard. What Jesus is doing is he's taking the assumptions of the day, teachings that people had made up in their mind, really, out of what they thought the Scripture was saying, and Jesus is diving deeper into it, and he's saying this is really what this means. Later on in Leviticus, if you keep on reading, it actually says to be kind to the foreigner and the alien and treat them just like you would treat anyone else. But guess what? It was inconvenient for the people, so they deleted that part in their teaching. What have you heard people today are saying? Fast forward 2,000 years, 21st century North America, Jesus confronts our assumptions about other people's worth, okay? People, we need to be confronted by Jesus with this verse, first of all, because we have names that are being used today. Alt-left, alt-right, bigoted, deplorable, names like radical, snowflake, even words with religious connotations to them that the secular world is using 
that we might imply on other people like irredeemable. That's a religious word. Words like unjustified, unforgivable. Are you hearing these things in the world today? Are they labels that you have put on other people or other people feel like you've, they've put on you? Jesus is going to confront that in this, and he's going to say this, whether it's the large worldview that you have about people that you're never going to meet and you call them your enemy, you need to be checked yourself. And he's checking the people of his time because the Jews and the Samaritans and the Romans, they all lived with the same thing, and they had enemies that were told that they had to be their enemies, or they were the enemies because they had done things against each other, made assumptions about each other's culture. And so I don't know much more of a more relevant verse in Scripture today that can speak to us than these words about loving your enemies and how does that happen? How can we heal? The, the, the place that we heal is encountering God. And we're going to encounter God in these verses because we're going to learn about His core value. And this is His core value. Encountering God looks like this in three steps. Three steps. Number one, when you encounter God, things get real. Okay? Jesus is traveling through um, Israel, and he has to go through Samaria. And I told you just before, there's cultural tensions between who? The Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the lowlifes to the Jews. The Jews says that they were irredeemable, unworthy, all of these things. These were the cultural assumptions. But Jesus takes the route that people normally don't take. That if you're a Jew, you'd normally bypass Samaria like this. But what does Jesus do? He goes right through the heart of the enemy territory, and he stops at a well, a famous well, where Samaritans would go to get water. And there he stops at the well, and he meets somebody that was completely an enemy, not just a Samaritan, but a woman. And the woman's shocked when he sits down with her, and she says, what? What are you doing talking to me? You're not supposed to be talking to me. I'm not supposed to be talking to you. Jesus immediately is showing something to us. He's showing us that there's value in another person, even if that person you think has no value, God himself values. He sits with her at the well. It's an uncomfortable situation, and so they talk with water cooler talk, right? They start talking about the water. Oh, this, and then Jesus says, well, if you would know me, then you would know that you'd have a water that would spring up to eternal life. And the woman says, well, tell me about this water. And you know what Jesus does? He gets real with her, and he says, go and get your husband, And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, well, of course you don't. You have five husbands. (laughs) Wow. He got real with her. It wasn't so much about my culture versus your culture. It wasn't what you have done against me and I've done against you. But Jesus, in love, was confronting a person personally about the relationship with God. And he was pointing out to her that the real enemy isn't out there or somebody else that has caused you to do something, but there's a real fight that's going on inside of you that's keeping you from God. And she admits, and finally in the end she believes. So when you encounter Jesus and he says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, he's asking you to sit at the well with him, put aside all the other preconceived notions about other people and say, how are you doing in your life? Have you been holy? Do you have five husbands? Do you have five wives, either you've physically or emotionally or visually cheated on your spouse? How are you doing with, with cutting corners? You believe people cut your corners on you and you believe that people cheat you. Well, how are you doing at your work? How are you doing at your school? How are you doing in your relationships? Are you cutting corners yourself? He gets real with you, and that's going to expose you. 
the second thing. When you meet the real Jesus, you're going to get exposed. And that's a good thing, because this is the beginning of taking down the tensions of confronting your enemies, and Jesus is doing this with you. It says in Isaiah that Isaiah is given this, uh, he's swept up into heaven, and he sees this marvelous scene. He sees angels flying around, that two wings were covering their face, two their feet, and two they were flying with. And this music was just rattling all of heaven. The beams in heaven were rattling. And Isaiah says, I don't belong here. He says, get me out of here. This is obviously not the place that I'm going to be. I'm like tiny, he says. And he says, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people who have unclean lips. And what he's saying is, I don't deserve to be here in front of this holy God who's holy and perfect, and and I'm just a human being? I'm tiny. What am I doing here? He's getting exposed. Later on in the scene, a coal is put on his tongue, a coal that should burn him, but it doesn't because this is what this is getting to. When you and I admit and we have a confrontation with Jesus, a healthy one that says, I have been wrong. And God comes to us in the New Testament, in Colossians, and he says that you were once enemies of God, that you were once those people that had hostility against God. And yet, when that coal comes and touches his lips, he's not burned up. In Isaiah, that's telling you something. That's telling you that God has mercy. That he puts you in a place that although you don't belong there, he wants you there and he, and he allows you to be there. It says in Colossians 1.21, you were once alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And the last thing that's left is, just like little Danny, 18 years old, I can't repay this, this scratch is too deep, The debt is too big. This TV is too broken. You have a God that has come to you and he said, you can't pay for this. Don't even try. You're going to mess it up more. Although you've been wrong to me, I'm going to make right with you. And he did that in the very words that we heard. Because you have a heavenly father, the most high God, and you stand in his holiness and you're like, I don't belong here. And he comes to you and he says, I'll read the part in black. You read the red with me. You will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The core value of God is love. You know, you talk about your core values at work, the things that you're going to achieve. God's core value is love, and I'm going to get more specific. The word that is used here in Luke chapter 7 for love your enemies is agape. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That word that's used earlier in verse um, 27, same word used in verse 32 is love. There's several words for love in the Greek language, and some of the popular ones are philia, like Philadelphia. The city of what? Brotherly love. This is that common love that like I have with my neighbor because they're good to me, I'm good to them, and we live in uh, harmony together because there's good vibes, brotherly love. Another word for love is eros, which is erotic love or sexual love. Another word for love is right here. It's agape. And if you talk to the people or you read the people that write the lexicons about the Greek language, they say something real special about this word. They say this word doesn't, it doesn't come out of that secular word like Homer and uh, Socrates. They don't use this word agape. They use those other words for love. This word agape became famous, guess, in which circles? Christian circles. 
circles that had encountered Jesus, and this is a word that is unique in this book, the Bible. It's a word that became popular because this is what this word means. It's not a, it's not a love that is like, I love pizza, right? <laughs> you know, or I love long walks on the beach. It's not this feely kind of love, but it's a love that is born out of a will and determination. It's a will that says, I'm going to love someone because I choose to love someone, because they're the object of my love, and they might not be lovable back. And you know what? Sometimes, listen, when God became man, and he dwelt among us, and man, the enemy of God, took him into their own hands and beat him and scourged him and nailed him to a cross, do you think that Jesus was having immense emotional feelings towards those people that were doing this to him the whole time? Like, oh, I have such deep, like, feelings for these people that they're putting nails in my hand. No! Because that's not the kind of love that he's talking about here. Jesus had a higher love, a love that says, I'm going to go through pain, even the pain of the people that persecute me and kill me. I'm going to go to death for this because it's not my will, it's my Father's will, and my Father's will is this, is that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that love even though there's not this, this, this brotherly philia, good feeling vibes towards another person, he says another love is going to win. And that's this agape love, a love that's born out of volition and out of will. Now you notice that that's the will that God put his son on the cross with, and that's the will that God went to the cross with. And he said to his enemies, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Your will, my will for love for these people to win them and to forgive their sins you and I, we're going to be hurt by people that take things from us that can never be replaced. Well, let me tell you this. You have a friend in Jesus who has taken something from you that can never be replaced. Your sin, your hostility, your angry feelings towards God and that selfish inward-lookingness, he's taken that away forever and that cannot be replaced. And it happened on the cross and it happened with agape love for God so loved the world. Same word. Therefore, because that's been taken away from you, that hostility, it cannot come back, and it cannot be directed at anyone else, and it will not be directed at anyone else because God's core value is love, a love that transcends feelings, even when the feelings of another person offend me. Um, that's why First Timothy is another a passage. This is God's will. This is his mission statement. This is his core value. This is good. He's talking about the godly life that you and I live. This is good and pleases our God and Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that means your enemies as well. That means the people that have taken something from you that can't be paid back. He wants them to be saved too. It was at the height of the Civil War when Abraham Lincoln was giving a speech and he was talking about the southern, Southerners and he said that these are, the Southerners are a fellow man but they're just an error. He said, they're a fellow man and they're just an heir. He gets done speaking about this again, racial tensions and uh, political tensions are high. This is one of the worst times in American history. And he says these words, there are brothers, they're a fellow man, they're just an heir. After the speech, an elderly woman comes up to Abraham Lincoln and she says, how could you say that about those Southerners? And you know what she says? They are irredeemable enemies. And you know what Abraham Lincoln came back and said? He said, but ma'am, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? 
which is exactly what your Savior did when he died on the cross to take away your sin. He destroys this hostility within us, between us and God, so we don't spend an eternity in hell, but we have eternal life with him forever. And the only thing that's left for us to do in this part from Luke chapter 6 says, because you're children of the Most High, because you have a God that is merciful to you, you will show mercy to them and kill them with burning poles on their head. Not a fake kind of love. Not a fake kind of, like, surfacey kind of, you know, condescending, like, I'm going to be nice to you and put a smile on and say something nice on your Facebook page. Not none of that. It's a deep love that's going to hurt to have and open up this conversation. In closing, three points about applying this love and one final illustration, okay? First of all, when we're applying this in, in our world today and we're thinking about those people that have hurt us, and maybe you can think about that person or that event or that situation that's hurt you in the past, number one, be real, just like Jesus is real. Be real about the situation, take a step back, and if you have something that flies at you and they call you any of those names that I said before or any of the names that you've heard people say that have hurt you, just let it fly. Just kind of just like, let it go. Just back away. Let it go. Because you know what? Those names aren't going to help any. They're only going to make the situation worse. And the labels that we put on other people and the labels that, that people put on us, those are not going to help. And so just let, let that go. Just kind of let it fly and say, I'm going to get down to the what's real here. What's real here? What would Jesus want me to talk about right here? Is it really about retaliating back? Or, and this is our second point after letting it fly, am I allowed to be vulnerable can I myself be vulnerable in this situation, in this encounter, to open up a conversation in love because there's a deeper love that I want to share with this person? This deeper conversation might mean that I'm going to have to be vulnerable. And it says here in Luke, it gives a couple examples. You know, Imagine that you're coming back from um, getting your sheep. Uh, you bought some sheep or traded for some sheep in the market back then, and you're walking through town, and Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Now, there's an enemy. You know, pre-meeting Jesus, Zacchaeus, you know who he was, right? The little guy, you know, he met Jesus and he, he, his life was changed. But imagine before he met Jesus that he's the tax collector there and you're walking by, you're a Jew and you're like, yeah, what's that guy doing? He's a traitor. He's a Jew that's now making money for the Roman government and he's making a ton of money on top because he's always ripping people off. He has two big Roman soldiers by him at his table and you walk by his table, he says, come over here. He says, what are these sheep over here? And he said, yeah, I just bought these at the market. This one's for my neighbor. This one's for my family. This one's for, 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 for my friends. You know, I'm going to go back, and I'm sharing this with them. He says, I, they're all taxed. And then he throws on 50% more tax on front of it. And you say, but I can't afford this. And little Zacchaeus, he jumps up on his table, you know, so he can get in your face. And, and two Roman soldiers are there. And you say, I can't afford this. And he goes, slap, right in front of everybody, right across your face. You can't do anything about it because what? There's these two big Roman soldiers by him. He looks at you and he says, you better pay that right now. You pay him the money. And then in your head you say, you know what? There's something really broken about this guy. There's something really deep and dark. And it's a love. <laughs> you know, you don't feel passion towards him. You want to kill him. He just embarrassed you in front of everybody. And you say, Zacchaeus, right here. Here's the other cheek. Get it out. Just get it out on me. Get it out on me. Slap. If your enemy slaps you, he, Jesus says, turn the other cheek, not because you want to be condescending to them, but because you know that there's something deep, dark there 
that you want to say, I will be the doormat for you. And don't get me wrong, when I say doormat, that's actually probably not the right word. Because we think that when we forgive our enemies that we're weak. And, and when you're slapped twice by Zacchaeus, you look weak. But actually that's a position of strength because Jesus says the weak person would hit that Zacchaeus back, but you're not a weak person. You're redeemed by the blood of Jesus and you're strong to show a unique love in this world that says it's not about getting slapped. If somebody asks for your jacket, which is the word used here, give him the shirt off your back as well. If somebody asks for maybe an hour of your life and you'll, you wish that you had 10 more hours this week to get done what you have to do, if somebody asks for an hour because they're a difficult person and maybe their problems are something they always want to talk about, you know what you say to them? Actually, let's get two hours and can I take you out to lunch and let's talk about this. And you know what God says? Uh, again, this is number two. Get exposed, be vulnerable, not out of a position of weakness, but out of a position of strength because you have a love that obviously they don't have and you want to share with them you actually will be blessed in the end. Because it says in this scripture that God promises that you will be rewarded. And I can't tell you whether that reward's going to come in the next hour or the next day or the next week or the next year, or if that reward doesn't come until heaven, but I do know that the greatest reward is, is that you were shown mercy by God, infinite patience, infinite love, infinite care, even when you were enemies. And so you are going to be called, and you are called, a child of God when you forgive the unforgivable, when you deal with difficult people with love. Which leads to the final thing. So first of all, get real, be vulnerable, and finally, show mercy. It's at the core of the Christian life, and there's no saying, I struggle with forgiveness. There's no saying, I struggle with forgiveness, because God does not say, I struggle with forgiving you. You forgive with agape. Not the feeling of passion, but the feeling of this is who I'm made to be. Jesus has taken away hostility, so I'm not going to live with it in my life. In closing, um, this is the illustration and this, the true story. I told you earlier about Jameson Pals. There he is with his family, Catherine, and three kids. In 2016, killed in an accident with a distracted driver. Um, the article from the Minneapolis Star Tribune says this, at the hearing for the sentencing of Tony Weekly, the truck driver who killed Jameson Pals, his wife Catherine, and three children. Rick Pals, the father of Jameson, was one of the witnesses at the, at the sentencing. And he says this. This is Rick Pals talking to the judge and to all who were present. The father of, of this uh, man, J- uh, Jameson, he says, I struggle to find the words to describe the grief that gripped me, Pals said, reading from an impact statement he wrote for the sentencing of Tony Weekly. I know how much God has forgiven me, how can I not forgive you? I am not in the position of authority to extend you mercy, Tony. However, I can request mercy for you. In court on Friday, Rick asked the judge for leniency, and he wasn't the only one to do so. We asked the court to give the maximum allowable grace, said Gordy Engel, Catherine Powell's father, reading from the letter he and his wife Nancy wrote to the judge. We've had people say, well, you have to be super Christians. No, no. We're just plain people, but we have a super God that just lifted us up, Gordy said. End of the article says, the judge was listening, although the prosecutor and first responders preferred the prescribed five to nine years of prison, the family's plea for grace yielded a sentence of 180 days in prison and two years probation. Struggling to deal with difficult people? You don't have to be a super Christian to do this stuff. 
You heard it right here. You have a God that's been merciful to you, a God that loves you, and a God that has taken away something that, he can never, that you can never get back, a God that has given you his infinite love for you to let go, to get real with people in a loving way, to be vulnerable, and to take the higher road with the love that Jesus did when he gave his life for you, and to show mercy because your heavenly Father is merciful. Amen.